Well, our passage today uh, is a very interesting passage. Uh, if you remember, um, James, James was a, a letter that's written. Uh, there was oppression and dispersion. There was oppression in the church in uh, Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And a lot of, there was a lot of people being scattered away from the church um, because of persecution and a whole range of things. And the end result of that, of course, um, was that when people were, were away from the leadership of the church, people tended to follow their own way. Uh, as, as what happens is when a person says, well, look, I don't feel the need to go to church. Um, I think I'll stay home. I know what happens. We tend to live not by God, the way God would wish, but we tend to, to, to live in accordance with what our, our carnal nature would uh, instead uh, prefer. So this letter that, um, that James has done is about very practical Christian living. He's seeing what's occurring, so he writes to them and he, and he goes through a whole variety of different topics. And today, what he talks about in the passage we've got today, he talks about the relationship of genuine faith to good deeds. And when I say good deeds, basically a summation of that would be Jesus-like attitudes and actions. That's what I call good deeds. So we're talking about what is the relationship between genuine faith and good deeds. This is also a very controversial part of James. Not just James as well. It's a very controversial part of the whole Bible. And there is one verse in particular which we'll focus on a bit later on where a lot of people say, well, this, this shouldn't be in the Bible. There's a contradiction. But in fact, when you understand a bit better, you realise that there in fact is no contradiction at all. So we're looking at James chapter 2 verses 14 to 26 and the title of my talk is Faith Without Deeds is Dead. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide the passage into three sections. The first one is the key message, Faith Without Deeds is is Dead, together with an example to illustrate that point. That's from verses 14 to 17. Then verses 18 to 20, um, there's a counter argument is put forward. And then it's considered by James and then dismissed. So it's, a, so some, so it's as if someone puts up an objection and, and, and James deals with that and dismisses that. And then the last part, verses 21 to 26, there are two examples of faith and works from Abraham and Rahab. Two really, really interesting Old Testament uh, characters. So let's go back to the first section, which is uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 the key message and an example to illustrate. Let me just read through the first verse first. It's important to get certain things sorted out right at the start. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Well, of course, the answer to that question, he doesn't give the answer, but of course the answer is no. Such faith cannot save them. So it brings up the question of what is, and I think this is important for later on in the talk as well, the question is what in fact is true faith? My, there's many ways you could describe this, but my way is to say, use the expression far, F-A-R. Faith, uh, or sorry, K-A-R, getting that wrong, K-A-R. First of all is know, agree, and then respond. We can't have faith or trust or belief in something unless we know what it is we're supposed to believe in, righto? So that we're called to believe in the facts. What are the facts? All of the facts specifically in relation to Jesus. His nature, 
his person, his nature, his ministry, and his promises. Everything the Bible says about Jesus, they are essentially the facts that we need to have firmly in our mind. The second thing is the word agree. We need to mentally, this this is what true faith comprises. The second thing is, is to mentally agree with the truth of those facts. Not to say, well look, I agree with that part, but not with that, but but I sort of agree with that. No, we look at the story of Jesus in in the Bible and we say, we either accept it or we don't. So it's either true or it is not true. So the first part is to know uh, the facts about Jesus. The second is to mentally agree with those facts. And the third thing is to respond appropriately. That's the key thing which many people forget about. It's not being a, being a believer is not just an intellectual pursuit. It's more than that. It involves our will and our response. It is to respond in trust, in surrender. I love the word surrender. Surrender means that I now have an authority above me who is my, who is totally authoritative, authoritative to tell me exactly how I am to live my life. He's the boss. He is the one I am to obey. No gifts, no, no, no ifs or buts. That's surrender. I surrender to him. Um, we depend on God's mercy. In fact, we understand that we are sinners, that Jesus died for us, and we depend entirely upon his mercy towards us because we do not deserve any of his favour. We also embrace. It's like, it's like a, a young child running up to mum or dad and jumping up into their arms or jumping up and wrapping their arms around him and embracing him. Why? Because I know I trust you fully. I trust you totally. You love me. You care for me. You're authoritative. I believe in you. You, I trust in you. That's what it means, I believe, to, to be a Christian, to for what true faith is about. Can such faith save them? Not the faith they're talking about, but the, but true faith certainly can. True faith always results, I believe, in two things. First of all, a radical change in the inner nature of our life. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I became a believer when I was 31. Someone first got serious with me when I was about 26. And my initial reaction was to say, well, I was going to say, my reaction before then was complete rejection. But then I remember someone disclosed it to me and spoke to me about it. And I, and I, and I sort of didn't believe all the details, but I, re- but this, but I got a sense that there was something there which I didn't know what it was. I had no idea, but I knew there was something beautiful there. And I spent the next five years trying to find out what that was until eventually I became, uh, put my trust in Jesus and became a believer. So there's two things. True faith is always a result in a radical change in the inner nature of our life. And secondly, it always results in Jesus-like deeds. There's always a connection between true faith and deeds. Let's go on to verse 15. And this is giving the example to illustrate the key message. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Well, of course, it is no good, is it? There is no good done whatsoever. 
Uh, and the, the other question is, is this an imaginary question? Did, did, did sort of James just sort of invent a person who, who said something like this? No, I don't think so. I think it is likely that he is talking to the dispersed church and realising that some of them have developed hard hearts and have turned their backs on people. And rather than saying, pointing at people and calling out names, he's just making it a, a, a sort of a vague a question that he's asking. So is it an imaginary question? I don't think so. I think it's a real question to real people. What he's saying is that these people are producing pious words hiding a hard heart. And I know that I have done that. I have done that on regular occasions and I still do it uh, on, on different occasions and when I know that I ought not to do so. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It, co- it couldn't be clearer. Could, it couldn't be clearer. Consider what Jesus said. This is what Jesus this is said in different parts of the Bible. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 to 43, when Jesus referring to the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, our deeds, we are saved not by our deeds, but on the day of judgment, God will look at our deeds, not because that is what saves us, but because our good deeds are evidence of genuine faith. So on the day of judgment, he will be looking at the life that we've led. What did Jesus say? Verse, verse 41, he says, 41 to 43, Depart from me, you who are cursed. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. Deeds, evidence, are evidence of true faith or a lack of deeds is evidence of the otherwise, not true faith. Right. Let's look at the next section. So a counter argument is put forward. And once again, um, he, he's sort of like suggesting that this is just a, an issue that he's raised himself but I think probably what has been happening is is in the dispersed church this, these are some of the things that some people were saying and so once again he's not wanting to point the figure but he's wanting to get the message across which he does so let's look first of all at verse 18 so this is a counter argument which then uh, James considers and then dismisses but someone will say you have faith I have deeds, meaning I've got faith but no deeds, um, but you've got deeds but you might not have faith. So he's disconnecting the two. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And then James comes back and says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So what he's saying is there is once again is that there is a direct connection between our true faith and our deeds. What is that connection? I suppose there are different ways you explain it, but for me, the connection between faith and good deeds is he, the Holy Spirit. When we first put our trust in Jesus, our genuine faith in Jesus, God gives us his, he, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us, and he, the Holy Spirit, enables us and prompts us to live the Christian life, to live a Jesus-like life 
of attitudes and actions. So that's the connection between the two. So that when there is no, if there are no good deeds, the Holy Spirit is prompting us and enabling us to do good deeds. Where there are no good deeds, then you've got to go back to the faith and say, hang on, if this was genuine faith, you would have received the indwelling Holy Spirit. But if there are no good deeds, a person has not received the indwelling Holy Spirit, therefore it is not saving faith. Right, so let's look at verse 19. It says, you believe, so here, here, he, here he comes dismissing it. And this is a this is a very challenging verse. Very challenging. We need to get it right. You believe, he's talking to this, this imaginary person who says, well, I can have faith but no need, no deeds, that's okay. But if this is an imaginary person, he says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This is a verse that's been very difficult to sort of pull apart. But when you look at it, it's really exciting because it makes sense. It says, so what to say again? It says, you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. Let's think about that. You believe there is one God. What does that mean? That is in fact saying you believe in what's called monotheism. That is, there is one God. Not, if you're a Hindu, you believe in multiple gods. Millions of gods. All false gods. But if you're a monotheist, you believe in one God. The, the Muslims believe in one God. One false God, I will say, but they believe in one God. Christians believe in one God, the one true God. That is what's called monotheism. So he says, you believe that there is one God. Good. But then he makes it complicated and he says, even the demons believe that and shudder. Wow, now what can that mean? Even the demon. who are the demons? The demons are fallen angels, they're God's enemies. So this is saying, even the demons believe. Is that right? Can the demons be said to truly believe? Let's think about that. It says, even the demons believe that and shudder. Why do they shudder? Well, because they know where they're going. But their belief is, their belief is false belief. Let's go back to what I said before. This is why I was talking about belief before. Let's go back to it. The demons would know Jesus. They would know the facts about Jesus. They would know his nature. They would know his ministry. They would know his promises. And they would mentally agree with that. They would know him. They are fallen angels. They would know who he is. But what is their, what's the third one? To know, to agree, and to respond appropriately. Their response is, no, I will not surrender to you. I will not embrace you. So that explains it. He says, then he says, um, You believe there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder because their belief stops at knowing and agreeing, but they refuse to respond appropriately. Just consider, um, the thing is, they see their fate. Another thing to bear in mind too is that ministers can sometimes be infected 
in a way, by the same thing, to a degree. You know, if you're a minister and you come up here to preach, what you do during the week is you sit down and you studiously study the Bible. You very studiously, you get out your your commentaries and you read them and study them and you think really hard and then you go through a whole intellectual exercise of writing it all out. And what can happen to, to pastors and ministers is they get up and it becomes an intellectual, at least in part, or, or, or so, sorry, sometimes it can even just be an intellectual exercise. So which is a terrible thing that that can happen. But of course, obviously when you're doing this, you, you, you are praying all the way through, you're doing it, and you want to avoid that problem. But it is something that nevertheless uh, still can occur. Right. Then we come to the last part of this section, verse 20, it says, You foolish person... Once again, talking back to this imaginary, or in fact real person or persons, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And what he's doing here is leading into the next part of the passage, verses 21 to 26, um, with regard to Abraham and Rahab. Right, let's look at that now. So Abraham and Rahab, two, Abraham particularly, but Rahab also, two Two wonderful characters, uh, Old Testament characters. Verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? Now, it, the words here are very, very important and we've just got to get them right. Otherwise, we can misunderstand what this section here is really saying. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Well, of course, yes, he was considered righteous for what he did. What did he do? Um, God said to him to take his son to the, up on the mountain and to sacrifice his son. But Abraham had prior faith and he trusted God that he could bring that even though he he even though Abraham put his son to death with the knife or whatever even though he put his son to death he had faith that God could bring him back to life he had an existing faith was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the on the altar yes he was considered righteous Let's continue on and it'll become clearer. Verse 22, and I'm just going to do verse 22 and 23 together. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. That's true. And his faith was made complete or shown to be real and mature by what he did. Then he says in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. What was it, and that's referring back to Genesis chapter chapter 15 verse 6. What happened was God visited Abraham and he told him things and he said to him, one of the biggest things he said to him was, even though your wife is barren and cannot have children, you are going to have a son through your wife. And of course, 
Ordinarily, a person would say, well, that's false. I can't possibly believe that. But he did believe. He believed what God said. And in fact, later on, he did get a son. And this was the son he was asked to put to death. It says, Abraham believed God. That is regarding having a son through Sarah. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Now, here we come now, verse 24, which is the real, this is the controversial verse, one of the most controversial verses in the whole of the Bible. Let me read it to you. Very important that we get this one right. This is what James says. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You get that? What if you just if you look at that at face value, it is saying we get right with God, not just by faith, but by faith and works together. Some people say we get right with God simply through works. Many people say it's faith plus works to get us right with God. Let's look at that. If you want to compare that to Paul, see what James said. But if we go back and look at what the Apostle Paul said throughout the Bible, and if we look at the totality of the Bible, we know the Bible says that we are saved by God's grace through faith alone. That is, a, that is, a, that is a, a, an unchallengeable truth in the Bible. But this appears to be saying which something that contradicts it. Let me say what, what Paul says. This is in Romans chapter 3 verse 28. A person, listen to this carefully, a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law or, in fact, deeds of any kind. So he's saying you are set, put right with God through faith, but James says you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Are these two things contradicting one another? No, they are not. What's the solution? What's, what's the, what's the different, what's the answer to that? It is because, you know, you know, you've heard the story about you see a car accident in the street and the police come and they talk to this person here and they talk to the person standing over there. And this person over here, they say, well, look, I saw this and I saw that, etc. And then they go and talk to the person over here and they say, well, I saw this and I saw that. And then the two policemen get together and they say, well, hang on, was that the same accident? Because people see the same thing, but they see it through different eyes, right? And that's the thing, important thing to bear in mind when it comes to this thing here. Righto. So when you think about James, James has got believers saying, if we go a little bit back, um, some of the people are saying, you can have faith without deeds, right? That's what some of them said in the, in the section between verses 18 to, 18 to 20. That's what some of the people imagined or real the same. I can have faith, but I don't have, to, don't have to have deeds, but I'm still right with God. So that's what they're saying. So, and so what Paul, what James is doing is he's addressing people like that. He's saying, he's saying to the people who say, I can have faith, but I don't have to have deeds. He's saying, hey, that's not right. 
If you've got true faith, you're going to have deeds as well. You can't be right with God if you don't have these good deeds. So he's not saying one is dependent upon the other. He's saying the two always go together. That one is an, is an, is an always byproduct of the other. But then you come to Paul. Paul's different, dealing with something different. What Paul deals with is he's got people who say, he's got, he's, for example, the Jews. The Jews say, righto, it's okay for you to have your faith, but you've got to have deeds as well. You've got to have deeds to go with it. For example, you can have faith in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus if you like, but you've got to be a Jew as well. Or you've got to be circumcised. Or you've got to do various things. So, so, so what Paul is saying then, he's saying to those people, no, that's not right. You're saved by faith alone. Forget about all of these extra things you're trying to add on. Right, eh? So can, if, if I'm not making it clear, please come and talk to me later on because it's very important that we get the distinction. The thing is, James is looking at one angle from certain, with a certain type of people with the wrong attitude. Paul is looking at the same issue from another angle for people who are also got the wrong thinking, but for a different reason. That's why, and that's why that they seem to contradict. In fact, they don't. Righto. It's also interesting to remember. For, or for example, when we talk about good deeds, sometimes it was circumcision back then, that could have been some of the good deeds people did, but now it could be church attendance. A person could say, well, I'm saved by faith plus attending church, reading the Bible, praying, and being basically a good person. And before you know it, what happens is the faith thing drops to one side, and the person says, well, I go to church, mum and dad were Christians, I grew up in a Christian family, etc., therefore I am right with God. No. No. We are right, we are saved by God's grace, unmerited favour, through faith. That's it. That's the end of it. Other things are byproducts of that. Now, there's two, two sayings which I think are worth um, repeating. Jesus-like deeds don't save, but they are true faith byproducts. That saying is true. There's another saying which I really love. I forget who wrote this, but it goes like this. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Do you get that? Do you get that? Is that clear? We are saved by faith alone, but not by a so-called or false faith that is alone. You see what I'm getting at? So people... We are saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by this false faith, which is alone because there are no Jesus-like actions and attitudes that come with it. You see what I mean? Because that, that, that is a faith that is alone, in a different sense. If you don't understand that, please ask me later on. I'm doing my best to explain that. Right, let's look at the last verse, which is, or last verse, which is 25 and 26. This is about Rahab. Isn't that interesting that God uses a prostitute? What a what a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. In the same way as Abraham, was not even Rahab, and it says it says the prostitute, I assume that she then becomes the former prostitute. I assume that that would be the case. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute, and her story is all in um, I think it's Joshua chapter two. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did 
when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, it's, it's, it's almost like saying, you could read this to say, because she did this, God then considered her righteous. No, but that's not really the story. She did this because she was right with God. She, she, she was right with God already. She believed in God, had faith in God. And as a result of that, she did what she did. That's the thing. It was a byproduct. Um, it says, in the same way, it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, living out her pre-existing faith when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions at great personal risk. That certainly was for her. Easily have, have, have ended in her death. As and let's Look at the last verse, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It couldn't be made more clear. As the body without the spirit, meaning referring the spirit there, referring essentially to physical life, as the body without that is dead, just like a corpse, so faith without deeds is dead. Boy, this passage is really making it abundantly clear. What do we need to do from this? I suppose it's a constant sense of recognising our failures, recognising our weakness, humbling ourselves, acknowledging that we do fall short, but knowing that God is a good and loving God who is aware of our weaknesses, who loves us, wants to encourage us, and when we do do wrong, he's ready to pick us up and carry us on. And not to give not to give up in despair when we see how far we fall short of the people that we are called to be. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this wonderful message from your word. Lord, we love your word because there is so much living, wonderful truth to help us to live a, a good life. And look forward, Lord, to the great hope that we have that one day we will be with you in paradise that we will know, see you face to face and we will know your glory fully. In Jesus' name, amen.